We invite you to turn again this morning to the book of Habakkuk. This morning our study finds us in chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. Father, we come to you and we want now as we study your word to do so beneath the cross of Jesus. Remembering what we once were and remembering what we now are as your children and recognizing that the only reason we have any interest in your word is because of what your son Jesus has done in us and for us in the work that he accomplished at the cross. So we thank you for the new life that you give us that wants to study your word, that wants to hear from you. And we pray, God, that you would fan that flame afresh in us this morning, that we would long to hear your word, long to know what it says, long to put it into practice. And Father, I pray for me, for myself, the messenger now, that I would preach this message beneath the cross of Jesus, not as someone who has all the answers, not as someone who has any authority in myself, as someone who needs the blood of Christ covering me just like everyone else, and as someone who needs the blood of Christ covering this message. So, Father, let me preach today beneath the cross, in the shadow of the cross, and let us hear from you and Let the message be um, what is key for us today, not mainly the messenger, that we would leave saying that we've heard from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Habakkuk, uh, as you've been noticing, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, is written in an unusual style. Unlike most of the other prophetic books in the Old Testament, it's not a collection of sermons. And uh, unlike what we're accustomed to in the New Testament, this is neither a gathering of stories nor a letter written from one person to another or to a group. What we have in the book of Habakkuk is actually a drama, a play, if you will. Now, there are only two players in this drama, so it's really a conversation between Habakkuk and the Lord. That's the way it's written. It's a conversation. But if it had been written today or in more modern times uh, and we were to read it together, the print might have been laid out something like uh, those plays that you used to read in high school, those Shakespeare plays where down the left-hand column of the page is the name of the speaker and then a little colon and then out to the side what he says and so that you can tell there's a conversation happening. And that's what's happening here. And that's how we should think of this. First, Habakkuk speaks in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. And he says, God, why don't you do something? Your people are dishonoring your name. They've forgotten your law. Why don't you do something? And then God responds in verses 5 through 11, I am doing something, Habakkuk. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people, and they're going to sweep through and they're going to judge my people. And then Habakkuk responds again, the Chaldeans, verses 12 and following in chapter 1, the Chaldeans, they're worse than we are. How could you do this, God? How could you use these people who are worse than we are to punish us for our sins? And then God replies, beginning in chapter 2, verse 2, 
as we began to see last week, something like this. Believe it, Habakkuk. It's going to happen. But know this. The Chaldeans will also be judged for their wickedness. I will not leave the guilty unpunished. So what we have here is a conversation between Habakkuk and God, a drama. And in fact, though you can't see it uh, in the English renderings of the book of Habakkuk, this drama was originally written in Hebrew in a very poetic uh, language. For us, poems would rhyme and have meter. For them, it was a little bit different. But this was written as a drama and as a poem. And so again, if you think back to those plays of Shakespeare that you used to read in high school, it's a lot like that. It's a drama written in poetic language. And if you were to think of it in those terms, if you were to think of Habakkuk as an ancient Shakespeare, what you would do with this particular play is you would categorize it in the category of a tragedy. Because that's what really is unfolding here as Habakkuk and God speak to one another. A tragedy. This is a book about God's devastating judgments First on his own people, the Judeans, in chapter 1. And then on their oppressors, the Chaldeans, in chapter 2. We know the Chaldeans as the Babylonians. I may refer to them as one or the other throughout. In fact, if you wanted to just summarize the tragedy of this story and the storyline of Habakkuk, you might do so by reading chapter 1, verse 11. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on. God says of the Chaldeans. In other words, he would indeed use these wicked people, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to be the instruments of his judgment on Judea. But they will be held guilty, he says, they whose strength is their God. The Chaldeans would be judged for their oppression of the Judeans. That's the, that's the outline of this book. The Chaldeans will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty whose strength is their God. And in chapter 2, especially beginning in verse 4, going down through the rest of the chapter, we find God describing exactly what that judgment will look like on the Chaldeans. And so that's the passage we come to today. That's the passage that I'd like you to turn your eyes upon now. Let's read chapter 2, verses 4 through 20 together. Here's what the Lord says about the Chaldeans. Behold, as for the proud one, His soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his! For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? 
For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now, before we go on and consider exactly what God says about the Chaldeans in this speech, we need to ask a burning question of these verses. How is it that God can use the Chaldeans to do his bidding in chapter 1 and then punish them for doing it in chapter 2? It's a good question, isn't it? How can God use the Chaldeans to do his bidding in chapter 1 and then turn around in chapter 2 and punish them for doing his bidding? It's an important question to think about. It's one that maybe some of you have thought about before in relation to the man in the New Testament named Judas Iscariot. Because Jesus says in Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. What Jesus is saying is this. God's plan is written in the Old Testament. For hundreds of years it's been written. Before Judas Iscariot was ever thought of, it was written that the Son of Man, the Messiah, would come and He would suffer, He would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, and He would die. That was all written. That was God's intention all along to send His Son to be betrayed and crucified. Peter says this in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, that it was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that put Jesus on the cross. It was God's plan that Jesus be handed over. But Judas would be judged for having the greedy hands that did so. How can God use Judas or the Chaldeans to do his bidding and then turn and punish them for doing so? It doesn't seem fair at first brush, does it? We need to think it out briefly. It's not directly discussed in the book of Habakkuk. But I think it's an important enough question for us to take a side trail before we really dive into chapter 2. I think three things need to be said this morning. Number one is this. We must acknowledge, as we said last week, that God is not obligated always to explain himself to us. God is not obligated in every situation to explain himself to us. In other words, whatever God does is perfectly right and good and just and true simply because God is the one doing it. Whatever God does is good because God is the one doing it, whether it seems fair to us or not. And that's what we have here. We don't understand how this can work necessarily, but God is the one doing it, so it must be right. 
And believing that, we said again last week, that believing that allows us to live in faith when we don't have all the answers to the questions that we bump up against in God's Word or in our daily circumstances. Second, though, we need to learn in the book of Habakkuk and from the story of Judas and other stories in the Bible that God is able to use evil as part of His good plan without being guilty of evil Himself. God is able to use evil as part of His good plan without being guilty of evil Himself. Say, how can that be? I don't know. Refer back to number one. God doesn't always have to explain His ways to us. But we find again and again and again that God allows, even designs, evil things like the death of His Son, which was His predetermined plan, and yet He's not guilty of evil. How does that work? We don't know for sure. But we know that it's true. We need to get that category in our minds, that God can use evil for His purposes and not be guilty Himself of evil. And thirdly, Before we go on into the book of Habakkuk, we need to notice that neither the Chaldeans in Habakkuk nor Judas in the Gospels did what they did for the glory of God. Judas didn't betray Jesus because he was really concerned that God's plans go forward without a hitch. He did so for selfish gain, for 30 pieces of silver. Similarly, the Chaldeans did not overtake Judah and punish them out of a sense of obligation to do God's will or out of a desire to mete out God's justice. They did so simply to demonstrate how powerful they really were. We saw that last week in chapter 1. They did what they did for themselves. In fact, chapter 1 verse 7 says their justice and authority originate with themselves. They weren't doing this because of a sense of God's justice or God's authority. They were doing it because they wanted to do it. So in one sense, they did God's will. They punished the Judeans, and Judas did God's will. He handed over Jesus. But it was clear that in both cases, they did so motivated by selfishness. The Chaldeans did it for selfish ambition in verse 7, chapter 1. They did it out of a thirst for blood in chapter 1, verse 9. And they did it out of sinful pride in chapter 1, verse 11. Therefore, though they had done God's will, technically, they still deserved to be punished because of the way in which they did God's will. And they're a warning to us. They are a warning to us that it is not enough merely to obey God outwardly and technically. God wants our hearts to be with Him while we obey whether we're executing His judgments like the Chaldeans, whether we're giving our tithe, whether we're preaching a sermon, whether we're raising our children, whether we are attending the Lord's Day service, all these things are out of obedience to God. But the Chaldeans teach us that obedience is always a combination of right action with right motivation, not just one or the other. God doesn't just want technical obedience. He doesn't want legalistic obedience that says, I've got to do this because uh, it'll work out for me or because I'll feel really bad if I don't. He wants us to do it out of a heart that loves, honors, and respects Him and His Word. So it's important that we always have right actions and right motivations together. And some of us may need to hear the opposite side of that. Some of us may need to stop living in the land of good intentions and actually begin doing the will of God. But many of us need to hear from the Chaldeans that outward obedience, technical obedience without a heart of love to God is not obedience at all. And it leads, finally, as we will see, to God's judgment. So then, 
Let's now go and begin to look at these verses that we read a moment ago. What are the Chaldeans doing? What is their biggest problem? Chapter 2, verse 4 tells us their biggest problem was pride. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. God starts there because that was the key issue. The Chaldeans were filled with pride. The kind of pride that made them laugh at kings, chapter 1, verse 10, because they thought that they were so much greater. The kind of pride, chapter 1, verse 11, that made them worship at the altar of their own strength. The kind of pride, chapter 1, verse 16, that made them offer sacrifices to their weapons of war. It says they offer sacrifices to their net, but that's a word picture to describe their weapons that they use to capture people with. And I think Habakkuk's probably being literal. They probably took their weapons after they'd won a battle and piled them up in the middle of the camp and offered sacrifices and worshipped themselves and their weapons. They had forgotten, if they ever knew it, that God was the one who'd given them the power. God was the one who was raising up the Chaldeans, chapter 1, verse 6. They'd forgotten, the same as Pontius Pilate would later forget, that they would have no authority except it was given from them from above. They thought that they were conquering the world solely based on their military prowess and their superior might. So the Chaldeans were the antithesis of what God calls His people to be, weren't they? We are to be humble, trusting in God, and they were prideful, trusting in themselves. Their souls were not right within them. But, says the Lord, the righteous will live by his faith. You see what God's doing there at the end of verse 4? He's inserting a word of hope, a word of instruction for Habakkuk and for us. Isn't that just like God? Here's a whole chapter dedicated to judgment. A whole chapter that could be very bleak and hopeless. And God inserts the word of hope that we need. Yes, the problem is pride. Yes, we're going to see that unfold in the rest of the chapter. Yes, we're going to see judgment for that sin. But God says in the midst of that, I want you to see that there is another way. The proud one has a soul that's not right within him, but the righteous one lives by faith. That's good news. It's as though God is saying to us, I want you to avoid the fate of the Chaldeans that you're about to hear described. I want you to avoid this, Habakkuk. I want my people to avoid this. So before we ever get started, he says, put aside your pride and live by faith. Pride and faith are opposites. Pride says, I will make myself great. Faith says, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. John 15, 5. Pride says with the Chaldeans, we will conquer kingdoms through our own strength. Faith says with King David, some boast in chariots and some boast in horses, but we will boast in the Lord our God. Pride and faith are the opposite. And none of us are probably going out anytime soon to conquer a kingdom as the Chaldeans were doing. However, We may be trying to conquer other things. Some of us may be trying to grow a business, trying to grow a church, 
trying to raise children, trying to conquer some particular sin habit in our lives, trying to pay down our debt, trying to solve a family dispute. There are all sorts of things that we are trying to conquer and achieve. And they may all be good things. But we may be tempted in each one of those different endeavors to use the tactics of the Chaldeans, to strive in our own strength, and if we should succeed in the task, to praise our own strength and to worship our own strength. That's the temptation for us. We can be just like these people. Or we can take the tactic of faith. The approach of George Mueller. I've shared this with you before. George Mueller uh, raised thousands of children, orphans for Jesus in the 1800s with this philosophy of faith. Work as if everything depended on your diligence and yet do not rest in the least upon your exertions, but upon the blessing of the Lord, who alone can cause your efforts to be made effectual. In other words, work with all of your might, but while you're doing that, remember that your might comes from the Lord and that your success will come from the Lord, not from your might. That's the difference between pride and faith. It's a subtle difference, but it's a profound difference. I say it's subtle because two people may be doing the very same task with the same amount of effort and with the same results. And one is doing it for his own vain glory. One is doing it so that he can congratulate himself, feel good about himself, gain accolades for himself. And the other is doing the same task with the same effort and the same results for the glory of God and recognizing his dependence on God and giving the credit to God when he succeeds. So in both cases, the difference between pride and faith is not necessarily what's achieved, but in whose strength it's achieved and who gets the credit when it's achieved. That's the difference. If you're doing something in your own strength, then you'll take the credit for it when it's done. If you're doing something in the strength that God supplies, then you'll give him the credit for it when it's done. So one person glorifies God by trusting and eventually crediting God with his success, and the other person glorifies himself by trusting himself and eventually crediting himself with his success. Which one are you? I mean, just ask yourself honestly, in the endeavors that you're uh, seeking to undertake in your day-to-day life, which one are you? Are you a Chaldean offering sacrifices to your own net? Or are you a righteous one who lives by faith? Now, before we leave verse 4, we're lingering here for a while, but we can't leave verse 4 without pointing out one more thing. And that is that it's possible that Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 was the Apostle Paul's favorite verse. We know that he quoted this verse at least twice in Romans chapter 1 verse 17 and Galatians chapter 3 verse 11. And if Paul was, as some people believe, the author of Hebrews, then he quoted a third time because this verse is quoted in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38. The main point is this. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is quoted three different times in the New Testament. That's very important. Most verses in the Old Testament aren't quoted at all in the New Testament. A few are quoted more than once. This one's quoted three times in the New Testament. And each time it's quoted, in Romans 1 and Galatians 3 and Hebrews 10, it's quoted to help us differentiate between pride and faith in matters of eternal salvation. 
The New Testament quotes it not in relation to winning a battle, not in relation to building uh, assets in a business, not in relation to being on a sports team. All those things are applicable. But the New Testament quotes this verse three different times, always in relationship to eternal salvation, the difference between pride and faith. Because Paul and the other New Testament writers knew that we are just as prone to the disease of the Chaldeans in matters of salvation as we are in anything else. In other words, we are just as prone to try to achieve salvation in our own strength as we are to be prideful in any other endeavor that we undertake. Just as prone. We are hardwired because of our sin nature towards self-reliance. Self-reliance is thrown around as a good word a lot in our culture. In the Bible, it's not such a good word. God-reliance is the point of the Bible. And we're hardwired towards self-reliance. Deep down, we would like to feel like we contributed something to our salvation. Even if we know in our heads that's true, deep down in our hearts, sometimes God allows us to see that there is pride still left in there that would like to be able to take some little bit of credit for who we are. And why we're different from everyone else. That's why it's so easy for us to get frustrated with lost people. Because we forget that we would be just like them if it weren't totally for the grace of God. There's nothing good in us. We get frustrated because there's something still in us that would like to be able to say, I did it. That's why sometimes people get very angry. It's not just a matter of debate and and good-spirited debate among some Christians, but some Christians get very angry debating matters of what the Bible says about predestination. And the reason for some that they do is because they want to be able to say that they did something to contribute. I had to do something. Yes, you did, but God gave you the strength to do it. That's why some people even get upset with verses like John 15, 5, where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You tell that to some people and they say, nothing? Yes, nothing. You can't do anything apart from Jesus. I don't know if I believe that. Even some people who are in church every week. Now, as believers, we know that John 15, 5 is true. But if we're honest with ourselves, and I've sought to be this week, we also know that something in our sin natures doesn't always like that John 15, 5 is true. Deep down, we would like to be seen by others and at least by ourselves as decent people, wise people, moral people, people who at least in some small way are deserving of all the things that God has given us in Christ. That's why we get so embarrassed when we're caught in sin. At least that's why I get embarrassed many times when I get caught in sin because I I don't want people to look at me and go, he's just as much of a pathetic loser as anyone else. But that's the truth, isn't it? I'm totally dependent on Christ and so are you. But I get upset when I sin because I'd like to uphold some sort of image that I have gotten here at least a bit on my own. So I often feel this Chaldean pride in my heart. I think some of you probably do as well. But we know better, don't we? We know better because the gospel teaches us something different. The gospel teaches us not to rest for one moment on our own strength, or on our own merit, on our own successes, on our own achievements, on our own spiritual biblical knowledge on our own religious checklists, on our own willpower. The gospel teaches us rather to bank everything, past, present, future, on the sinless life and the sacrificial death 
and the vicarious resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. His accomplishments are our only hope. And so Paul is quoting again and again, and maybe again, Habakkuk 2.4 to demonstrate this truth. The righteous don't live by pride. The righteous don't live by self-effort. The righteous live by faith. In other words, he's saying the only way to be righteous, to be right with God, the only way to have eternal life is by wagering your entire forgiveness, your entire future on the fact that Jesus Christ really did come to save sinners among whom you are chief. That's it. That's the only way to be right with God. You can't do it on your own. Have you done that? Have you really wagered everything on Christ? Taken all the chips off of your table and put them on Christ? If you haven't, would you do that right now? Just where you sit? Bank your forgiveness, bank your future on what Christ has done and not on what you have done or might do someday in the future. And if you've done that, Have you fully realized that apart from Jesus you can do nothing? Have you come to terms with the fact that even the faith that you did use to lay hold of Christ was a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8 says. This is the difference between pride and faith. None of us are there yet. None of us believe as surely as we ought to. But we need to. We need to take the chips out of our table and put them on to Christ and trust wholly in Him. Now, I've entitled this message, Woe is Me, because though the time I've given to verse 4 may not reflect it, this passage, the bulk of this passage, is about God's pronunciation of woe on the Chaldeans. So that's where the title comes from. And you can see that begin to unfold a little bit more clearly as we go through the rest of the chapter. God continues, first of all, with a summary of the pride of the Chaldeans in verse 5. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. He's painting the Chaldeans as a drunk man who's going around the town raging. And that's what they were doing all around the Middle East. And then he goes on to describe in verse 6, the first half of the verse... The fact that the very nations that the Chaldeans were oppressing and conquering would eventually cease to be the taunted and would become the taunters. Will not all of these, these nations he's spoken of, these peoples in verse 5, will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against them? In other words, you will reap what you sow. You taunt others, you'll eventually be taunted. You conquer others, you oppress others, you'll eventually be oppressed. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter to describe exactly why they would be oppressed and how it would happen. Why and how they would be judged. How can we summarize verses 6 through 20? Maybe with a simple sentence like this. Their main problem, remember, was pride. So the sentence has to start with pride. How do we summarize verses 6 through 20, beginning with pride? Pride leads to lovelessness. If you just wanted to put a banner over Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20, what you would say is pride leads to lovelessness. Because that's what we see in these verses. The Chaldeans were 
full of themselves. Their faith was in themselves. And their arrogance eventually led them to commit acts of atrocity against their neighbors and acts of idolatry against God, as we read. They were, if you will, hell-bent on doing things their way. And it caused them to defame God and it caused them to walk all over other people. Pride leads to lovelessness. It was true for them. It is true for us. One of the reasons why it's so important to differentiate between pride and faith is to make sure we're going to heaven. But another reason, maybe another, an even more important reason to differentiate between pride and faith is because if we are prideful, we will walk all over people. And we will defame God. And that's really more important than whether or not we go to heaven. Whether or not we love others and love God. Pride leads to lovelessness. Now let's tease that out just very quickly under five headings. Summarizing what we see in these last 15 verses of the chapter. Five headings, five different types of sin that the Chaldeans committed. Number one, swindling. Swindling, verses 6 through 8, the middle of the verse. Woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the people will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and its inhabitants. Swindling was their first sin that flowed out of their pride. Probably what he means here Well, definitely what he means. He says that they made themselves rich with loans. But probably what that means is they lent money to their neighbors, to the neighboring countries, at exorbitant interest. They lent money to their neighboring countries knowing that they were taking advantage of them. Or maybe they took advantage of foolish individuals who came to Babylon needing help to the government and they lent them money because they were fools and they knew that they could take them for a ride. Or maybe it refers to extortion. All of these things, though, in verse 6 amount to theft. They're increasing what is not theirs. Swindling. I wonder if any of us are guilty of swindling. It's not out of the realm of possibility that someone in this room may be putting his or her foot on someone else's throat financially. Perhaps by overcharging people for goods or services. Perhaps by not paying fair wages to those that may work for you. Perhaps by withholding due payment for services that you've received. Perhaps by lending someone money at an oppressive interest rate. There are all sorts of ways that you can hold people hostage financially. And some of us are so self-concerned that this is maybe what we're doing even now. The question we have to ask ourselves is, if we are swindlers, what does that say about our faith? Are we trusting in ourselves? In our methods? Or are we trusting in God? Number one, swindling. Number two, Deceit, verses 9 through 11. Deceit. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. The problem here in these verses is evil gain, as he says, probably in the form of cunning or deceit. Deceit is always against God because God is the one who says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Those are biblical words. So deceit is always against God, but deceit is always also against our neighbor. 
Because we only ever lie in order to gain an advantage over someone else, right? To gain an advantage for ourselves or to push someone down so that by pushing them down we gain an advantage for ourselves. That's the reason why we lie. God doesn't tell us exactly how the Chaldeans did it, but I can think of a few ways, and so can you, that we do it. That we are deceivers. Some of us lie straight out. Some of you may have a problem with lying. Just out and out lying. Others of you may be allowing people to believe things that are false because that gives you an advantage. You haven't actually told them the lie, but you haven't actually told them the truth either. Some of us, especially teenagers, at least when I was a teenager, we were good at leaving out details that didn't work in our advantage, and that's deceit as well. So we have to ask ourselves again, are we deceivers? Are we deceivers? And if we are, what does that say about our faith? Are we trusting in ourselves and our abilities? Are we trusting in God? Number two, deceit. Number three, manipulation. Manipulation. Verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We'll come back to verse 14 next week. But for now I want you to notice that the Chaldeans used their position of power to oppress other people. Specifically, they did it most often through violence. Violence is mentioned there in those verses. Most of us aren't in a position to enforce our will violently. Although there may be a dad or a father, excuse me, a dad or a husband here, for whom these verses should be a kick in the stomach. There may be someone here who is enforcing your will violently, and if that's so, you need to stop and you need to repent. But most of us aren't like the Chaldeans. Most of us don't have a chance to enforce our will violently. But many of us do manipulate people in other ways. That's the essence of violence. You're manipulating someone to do what you want by force. Some of us are manipulated in other ways. Some of us are very good at using positions of authority to manipulate others. Some of us are good at using our tongues to manipulate others, either sharp tongues or smooth tongues. Children are good sometimes at using temper tantrums to manipulate others. Women can use their bodies to manipulate others. All sorts of ways that we manipulate. And we have to ask ourselves, am I a Chaldean? Am I enforcing my will upon others by manipulating them? And if I am, what does that say about my faith? Do I trust in me or do I trust in God? So number three, manipulation. Number four, seduction. Seduction, verses 15 to 17. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Seduction. It's another form of manipulation. It's almost a subset. And it's one at which apparently the Chaldeans were very good, probably as individuals and certainly as a world superpower. They were good at seducing other people into their lair 
to take advantage of them the way a man might do to a woman by giving her too many drinks at the bar. That's what he's saying. Some of you have been on one end or the other of that kind of seduction or seen it happen. And that's what he's saying the Chaldeans would do with their power. We don't know what they used. Perhaps he literally means that they used Babylonian wine to seduce the neighboring countries. Maybe they used material goods. You know that's how it works in national governments. They use their material goods to seduce one another and take advantage of other countries. And maybe that's what the Chaldeans were doing. We don't know for sure. But we again have a good idea of how we do it. How we take advantage of people. How we seduce people. We can use alcohol. Probably that's not a big temptation for most of you. But some of you might have done this in the past. Some of you might be thinking about doing it in the present. Women, again, can do it with their bodies, but it can be done a lot of other ways. We can seduce people with money, bribery. We can seduce people with food. We can seduce people with flirtation. We can seduce people with flattery, most of all. Some of us are very good at flattery. What it is is another form of seduction, another form of manipulation. Telling people things that probably you don't really believe Sugarcoating everything so that you can get them to do what you want. Seduction. Flattery. You guilty of it? And if you are, what does that say about your faith? Are you trusting God? Or are you trusting your own human devices? Number four, seduction. Number five, finally, idolatry. Idolatry. Verses 18 and 19. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood, for its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, Arise, and that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. When we are self-reliant, when we are prideful, when we are trying to do things our way, not only do we fail to love others, but we fail to love God. And one of the first things that a self-reliant man does is begin to carve idols for himself. If you stop loving others and you stop loving God, one of the first things you will do is begin to carve idols for yourself. Now, it may be little wooden or stone idols as he's speaking of here. It may be your fishing net, quote-unquote, from chapter 1. It may be your title. Maybe the credentials that hang on your wall in your office. It may be your financial status. It may be your car. It may be all sorts of things. One of the first things we begin to do when we trust in ourselves is carve idols. Because it really looks bad to openly worship yourself, doesn't it? So instead of openly worshiping yourself, you achieve things and you, achieve the, you worship the things you've achieved so that in worshiping the things you've achieved, the things you've carved for yourself, you can actually be worshiping yourself without looking so silly doing it. That's what happens. And that's what happened to these people. That's why people worship stones in India and trees. And that's why people worship cars and houses in America. It's all the same. So ultimately, we're worshiping ourselves. Because our idols are always handcrafted. They're hand-achieved. They're hand-earned. As he says in verse 18, it's maker trust in his own handiwork. Since our idols are always hand-carved, they're not only evidence that we really trust ourselves and worship ourselves, but they are also fuel for the fire. 
The more idols you have, the easier it will be to worship yourself. Because the more idols you have, the bigger fish you are. And some of us have a lot of idols, and so it's very difficult for us to cease worshiping self. So let me just ask you, have you been worshiping any idols lately? Don't raise your hands because all of us would be raising them. I would be, you would be. All of us are guilty of worshiping things that we've achieved carved with our own hands. What does that say about where our faith really lies? Is our faith in God? Is our faith in the achievements of our own hands? Let me summarize by saying that the story of the Chaldeans illustrates one main truth. If our faith is in ourselves, we will do whatever it takes to, quote, make it happen. Including destroying other people and denying God. Or to put it in the short form, pride leads to lovelessness toward others and towards God. And pride leads eventually, as we see, to judgment. So woe is me if I'm puffed up with pride and self-reliance. Woe is me if my faith is in me. Because the swindler, verses 7 and 8, will eventually be looted by those he swindled. And because, verse 11, the deceiver's lies will eventually be uncovered. And because, verse 13, the manipulator will eventually find himself at the bottom of the food chain. And because, verse 16, the seductress will eventually show her own rear end. And because, verse 19, the idolater will find his prayers unanswered by handcrafted items that cannot speak or answer prayer. The fate of the self-reliant man or the self-reliant woman is discontentment, it's frustration, And unless we repent, in the end it will be God's judgment. So what are God's final words to Habakkuk in chapter 2? But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. There's a great contrast between the idols in verse 19 and the Lord in verse 20, isn't there? Verse 19, man makes an idol, man speaks to his idol, And man hears only silence in reply. Verse 20, the Lord makes man. The Lord speaks to man. And the Lord expects silence in reply. David says it like this in Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. See what Habakkuk and the psalmist are both saying? Idols cannot speak. The work of man's hands, whether it's a handcrafted tiki god or a hard-earned self-respect, cannot ultimately meet your needs. Man cannot by his own efforts save himself, no matter how many idols he carves or achieves. Financial stability, career advancement, the dream home, the dream job, Religious achievement, moral uprightness, all of these things are hand-carved, aren't they? 
and they cannot meet our ultimate needs. What are those needs? Peace with God, forgiveness of sins, life eternal. It's not the gods that we make with our own hands that can meet these needs, but the God who made us with His own hands. Mute idols have no answers to man's greatest problems. But God has spoken in His Word. And what does John the Apostle say about that Word? He says in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Contrast to the answerless, speechless works of our own hands, God, Hebrews 1-2, has spoken to us in His Son. And if we have the Son of God in whom we can trust for our forgiveness, for our eternal life, for help in our time of need, for peace that passes all understanding, why in the world would we ever trust in ourselves? Why in the world would we ever carve the idols in the first place? They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth in faith be silent before Him.